welcome to the Highly Strange Podcast. You are here with Sarah and Lewis. Hello. Hello, how are you doing? Yeah, I'm good. <laughs> having a good time? I'm having a great day. <laughs> oh, we've had some fun this afternoon. <laughs> we won't bore you with the details. <laughs> oh. um, right, this week, uh, to follow on from, you know, your horrifically depressing... Yes, it was very um, sad. ...torturous episode, we're going to cover mass hallucinations. Oh, do you know of many mass hallucinations? Uh, I know a few, I think. Okay. Obviously, the biggest one is like the Salem witch trials. It's probably arguably. Oh, okay. I didn't biggest. even know that was mass hallucinations. Well, it counts as kind of mass panic, which kind of clubs in with mass hallucinations. Oh, okay. Should we just get right into yeah, it? Yeah, let's just get into it. Let's do it. During the long dark nights of November and December 1803, a rumour spread in Hammersmith, West London. Several residents reported seeing a ghost. He was tall and dressed in a white cloak, although some residents said he had horns. The ghost jumped out and scared people in the darkness. Some said that he had actually attacked them. Thomas Groom, a servant, described his encounter with the apparition. I was going through the churchyard between eight and nine o'clock with my jacket under my arm and my hands in my pocket when some person came from behind a tombstone, which there are four square in the yard, Behind me, he caught me fast by the throat with both hands and held me fast. My fellow servant, who was going on before, hearing me scuffling, asked what was the matter. Then, whatever it was, gave me a twist round and I saw nothing. I gave a bit of a push out with my fist and felt something soft, like a great coat. Sounded quite, um, gave him a twist round and (laughs) gave him a fist. (laughs) What are you describing? (laughs) Thanks for that. That's it. People in Hammersmith began to panic. As is the case with things like this, rumours built on each other and took on a life of their own. A story spread that a pregnant woman had died of fright after being assaulted by the ghost. Many residents believed that the spirit of a man who had committed suicide was roaming the neighbourhood. It was considered sacrilegious to bury a suicide victim in a holy burial ground. Citizens formed neighbourhood watch patrols, prowling the streets each night in search of the spirit. A few days after Christmas, one of the watchmen saw the ghost and chased him, but he tossed its white cloak aside and disappeared into the night. On January 3rd, 1804, a man named Francis Smith was walking the streets of Hammersmith with his shotgun. As you do. Keeping an eye out for the ghost. As midnight neared, (laughs) he saw something, a figure clad all in white. He called out, Damn you! Who are you and what are you? Damn you! I will shoot you! (laughs) Smith fired before the ghost could answer. (laughs) 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 after what must have been a moment of fear smith realized that he had made a terrible mistake he had not shot a ghost instead he had murdered a man named thomas millwood no one saw that coming (laughs) thomas was leaving his mother's house to head home for the night millwood was a bricklayer clad head to toe in white and was customary for members of his profession millwood's relatives had begged him not to walk around at night dressed in white He had already had one altercation with someone who thought he was a ghost. (laughs) He had ignored them. (laughs) The trial of Francis Smith posed some vexing legal questions. Smith testified that he truly believed that Millwood was the ghost and that he thought he was defending himself. He hadn't been attacked. He had simply glimpsed a man dressed in white. Smith had fired his weapon before the bricklayer had a chance to identify himself. The jury in Smith's trial was sympathetic. At first... It came back with a verdict of manslaughter, but the judge refused to accept this verdict as they were not at liberty to find it. The jury eventually convicted Smith of murder. He was sentenced to death, although his sentence was later reduced by the Crown. 
His trial did raise an important legal question. Does genuinely believing that you are in danger, even if your beliefs are misguided, excuse a crime? It wasn't until the 1980s that the British court system came to a clear conclusion, finding that defendants like Francis Smith could use their mistaken beliefs as part of their criminal defence. What about the ghost, you ask? It is entirely a figment of Londoners' overactive imaginations. A few days after the killing of Thomas Millward, a cobbler named John Graham sheepishly came forward and admitted to being the ghost. <laughs> <laughs> he explained that the apprentices in his shop had been telling his children scary stories, so he decided to get even by frightening the apprentice. He wrapped himself in a white tablecloth and tried to frighten his workers at night on a few occasions. The panicked imagination of Londoners did the rest. The tale of Hammersmith Ghost is an excellent example of mass hysteria. People in the neighbourhood seem to have become genuinely unnerved by the escalating rumours. Their paranoia led to a tragic death. The people of Hammersmith didn't entirely learn their lesson from the events of 1804. People began to report similar sightings of the Hammersmith ghost 20 years later, only this time they claimed he could breathe fire. Oh, you had an That's upgrade. That's a little story. <laughs> Do you like it? <laughs> Just not going to walk, walk around in London wearing white now. <laughs> What was a shotgun going to do against a ghost? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> really it's didn't think it through. <laughs> like, like, like silver pellets, maybe. Yeah. Mm. Maybe it was like, I don't know, a, gu- a gun ghost. A gun ghost. Ghost gun. Ghost gun. <laughs> gun ghost. Ghost gun. <laughs> I don't know what's happening. I'm sorry, people. <laughs> We're not in a state of mind to record now. I'm having a hallucination as we talk, but it's fine. Story number two. Mm-hmm. <laughs> in February of 1946 Finnish observers scanning the skies were the first to report the sight of ghost rockets ghost rockets they spotted over 2,000 occurrences between May and December of that year August was the month with the most reports of the sighting over 200 of them were actually picked up by radar and the events were not without debris falling to earth sceptics jumped to the immediate conclusion that these were nothing but meteors The problem with jumping to this conclusion is that the ghost rockets did not occur during peak meteor showers. They were odd times and places. And this is the most tantalising reason not to think they were meteors. The ghost rockets seemed like they had the ability to be manoeuvred. Is this your first UFO story? Might be. Oh, (laughs) A separate group of sceptics were convinced that the Russians were experimenting with German missiles that they had confiscated after the war and were actually performing unusual tests with them. Investigations were put into place by British and US military and Swedish experts to learn if they were missile experiments, and this theory would be rejected by all three investigations. There would have had to have been missile fragments, and there weren't any anywhere. Then there was the eerie matter of some of the ghost rockets going too slowly to be a missile. Some were able to tilt, go horizontally, some seemed to be travelling in formations, and none had vapour trails. On most occasions, they were totally silent, and missiles would not be. On other occasions, witnesses described them as being rocket-shaped. Some had little wings, some didn't. They only appeared for seconds. They were often accompanied by bizarre cigar-shaped objects that gave off rumbling or hissing noises while travelling very slowly. This is Sarah's first UFO story. (laughs) I'm loving it. (laughs) If the ghost rockets crashed, it was usually into lakes. Some witnesses had seen the ghost rockets skimming the surface of the lake water before they dipped below. Dive teams could find nothing. Maybe a few near-empty craters in the lake bed and some disturbed aquatic vegetation. There was one ghost rocket crash that stood out from all the rest. Something crashed into the lake 
with a sound as loud as a thunderclap. It must have been an explosion. What went into the lake was a grey, rocket-shaped mass with wings. A committee was organised. It was actually named the Swedish Ghost Rocket Committee. Oh, well. They organised a Swedish military investigation that lasted three weeks. They could find nothing at the site. There were a few underwater disturbances, but no real clues or evidence. A head Swedish Air Force officer was certain that observers saw real physical objects, but they must have been constructed of lightweight metal alloys that had the ability to disintegrate almost instantly. By November of 1948, there was still no clear conclusion about what the ghost rockets really were or their origins. United States Air Force Europe documented a top-secret paper stating that the ghost rockets could have extraterrestrial origins. I'm loving this. They were put in the unexplained category, along with the UFOs that were popping up everywhere during the same time period. The Swedish had a similar opinion. According to the Swedish Air Intelligence Service, these phenomena are obviously the result of higher technical skill that cannot be credited to any presently known culture on Earth. It was presumed that the objects originated from something, sorry, from some previously unknown or unidentified technology, possibly outside of the Earth. Similar ghost rockets reports came out of Greece via British army units there. Reports of ghost rockets also came in from Portugal and Belgium. Ghost rockets events have somewhat faded from notice, but the consensus of opinion was that we should not discredit entirely the spectacular theory of extraterrestrial origins, keeping an open mind on the subject. Wow. I love how Sarah's first UFO-based story, and she refuses to use the word UFO and says ghost rocket. (laughs) (laughs) It has to be a ghost. (laughs) So the reason I... um, added it in is when mm-hmm. i did a little bit of research on it they said that there is like so there's no video evidence of anything in the sky a lot of people say that there wasn't anything there at all and that people were like imagining mm. things in the sky but that it started with about two or three people that saw it and then within days there was then like 500 reports of it. so the question is like did they really see the things in the sky oh, or okay. did someone make them believe that they saw things in the sky do you like Pokemon? Yeah, we've mentioned it before. <laughs> Got a Pokemon story for you. I'll recommend this to my dad. <laughs> Cartoons are usually seen as harmless entertainment for children. Other than the occasional kerfuffle over violence, most parents have no problems allowing their children to sit and watch the latest adventures of their favourite animated characters. The Pokemon cartoon was among the most popular animated children's show of the 1990s. The show, which was based on the wildly successful video game series of the same name, followed the exploits of a Pokemon trainer named Ash on his quest to become a Pokemon master. Pokemon meant Pocket Master, which described the creatures. They all exhibited unique characteristics and would be trained in order to battle other Pokemon. Many of the happenings in the Pokemon TV show were pretty benign, typical of many children's shows of the day. But a dark mark on the record of an otherwise wildly successful franchise occurred on December 16th, 1997, when an episode of the children's cartoons made its viewers ill. I think you're being really harsh on Pokemon, <laughs> calling it benign. <laughs> well, it just be as in nothing happened on any well, other episode that caused mass illness. Well. What we do have a problem with is episode 38. The episode that aired at 6.30pm on December 16th was called Computer Warrior Porygon. Millions of school-aged children tuned in to watch Pikachu, a yellow rodent with electrical powers, who is the flagship character of the franchise. Being really mean and calling him a rodent. Well, 
do you think he is? It's, it's a yellow mouse. And what's a mouse? Well, don't call him a rodent. That just sounds mean. <laughs> Sorry. A yellow mouse with electrical yes. powers. <laughs> That's better. That doesn't sound as horrible. Pikachu and alone. And be transported inside of a computer where they fought a Pokemon called Porygon. Am I saying that right? Yes. Yeah, cool. During the battle, Pikachu hit his opponent with an electrical attack that was depicted with a quick series of flashing lights. The flashing attack sequence appeared on screen at 6.51pm. By 7.30pm, 618 children had been rushed to hospitals. <laughs> I shouldn't be laughing, but it is quite funny. <laughs> they suffered symptoms such as convulsion, altered levels of consciousness, headaches, breathlessness, nausea, vomiting, blurred vision and depression. Reports of the illness spread like a plague. <laughs> to the point it warranted a report on the evening news. The news reports played the offending battle scene. After the evening news aired, still more children Thus. became ill. <laughs> Thus making more children ill. <laughs> the next day, TV Tokyo suspended Pokemon, promised an investigation and issued an apology. Meanwhile, officers from the Otago police station questioned the show's producers on order of the National Police Agency. The Health and Welfare Ministry held an emergency meeting to try and figure out what happened. Video stores pulled any Pokemon videos from their shelves. If officials were concerned, parents were downright panicked. Many slammed TV Tokyo with angry letters and phone calls, accusing them of putting ratings ahead of the health of their viewers. Some called for the TV station to install electrical screening devices to block sequences like the one that caused the illness. How these were supposed to work, however, remains unclear. Even the Prime Minister weighed in on the matter. He made a pretty bizarre statement about the dangers of rays and lasers since they had been researched as weapons. During the panic, Nintendo, the company behind the Pokemon juggernaut, saw its stock drop by 5%. However, the vast money machine that was the Pokemon franchise could not be laid low for long. And by April of 1998, the animated adventures of Ash and Pikachu returned to the small screen. TV Tokyo slapped warnings on every Pokemon episode from that point on. These warnings proved needless because there's not been an incident similar to the December 16th outbreak since. 1998 in Japan was an absolutely wild time. <laughs> you'd you'd have your child have a seizure, then you'd swap over and watch Nasubi and <laughs> dance around with a bag of rice. Well, it's funny you say that. Because this was not the first time that Nintendo's products were accused of causing harm to customers. The video game giant placed warning labels on its games after several teens experienced seizures while playing video games. However, there is a difference between the flashes in the games and those on episode 38. Namely, the flashing technique called Paka Paka had been used for years in anime, Japan's distinctive style of cartoons, including other episodes of Pokemon. In fact, episode 38 features about the same amount of Paka Paka as any other episode of the series. It's not clear exactly how many victims suffered seizures in any case. In a survey conducted by Hayashi, all in the Yamaguchi no, prefecture, researchers found 12 victims had no history of epilepsy. Of these, 10 had seizures during the episode and two others fainted. The researchers concluded that 11 of the 12 surveyed showed signs of undiagnosed epilepsy. Another survey conducted by Yamashita looked at children in 80 elementary schools in Fukuoka. Yep. Is that how you say that? It was given six days after the outbreak. Teachers asked their students if they'd experienced symptoms and questionnaires were sent to local medical facilities. Of 
32,083 students surveyed, half the students saw that episode. One suffered convulsions during the outbreak, while 1,002 others reported minor symptoms. The questionnaire sent to the medical facility showed 17 children treated for convulsions. Yet another study conducted in the wake of the panic looked at four children affected by the outbreak. The researchers diagnosed them with photosensitive epilepsy and believed that the rapid colour changes were responsible for the symptoms. It's clear that at least some of the children swept up in the panic really did suffer from seizures, in some cases because they suffered from photosensitive epilepsy. As to why this particular episode caused the seizures and previous ones did not, no one really knows. In any case, the children who suffered seizures were index cases, while the other children were afflicted by mass hysteria. They either observed others who suffered seizures, seizures, heard about the illness by word of mouth or saw news reports. Seeing that others who had seen the episode had fallen ill made them believe that they were susceptible to the illness too, and that anxiety manifested as symptoms that were relatively minor and passed quickly. These symptoms fit with those associated with mass hysteria. Headaches, fainting, dizziness, nausea, vomiting, convulsions and, fe- and fainting. Some of these symptoms are commonly asso- associated with seizures though. These symptoms include nausea, convulsions and seizures. However, other common seizure symptoms such as drooling, stiffness and tongue biting were not present in most victims. They only occurred in patients who were diagnosed later as actually suffering seizures. The hysteria was primarily spread by the breathless media reports. While media itself doesn't cause mass hysteria, it does give it a route by which it can spread from a relatively isolated group to a larger community, just as the newspapers in Mattoon helped spread the story of a fictional gasser and British newspapers spread the story of a razor-wielding madman dubbed the Halifax Slasher. The reporting on the Pokemon panic triggered a second wave of illness, especially because the nightly news foolishly replayed the scene believed to have sparked the outbreak to begin with. That's great. You have to wonder what they were thinking in playing a part of a video that they even suspected of being harmful, especially to children. While Matic theory explains most of the features of the strange Pokemon panic case, there are some questions that remain. There have been no cases like it before or since. Why would Paka Paka, a commonly used technique in Japanese animation, cause outbreaks of photosensitive epilepsy in this particular case if it never had before? With no other case data to go on, there is no real satisfactory answer. The Pokemon panic remains a strange and isolated case in this already bizarre world of the history of mass hysteria. Have you seen the episodes? Yeah, so I'm actually going to play you... um, Yeah, as someone that suffers seizures, (laughs) I was a bit... um, reluctant to watch but um so i've got what they show you now versus what was actually played at the time it's okay i've taken side my anti-seizure tablets just eat <laughs> <laughs> so that is what they saw oh that's what you see now yeah But there was a specific moment in the Porygon episodes. Yeah, it's where, where it flashes makes a certain move. Yeah, and I, I believe the screen flashes like red and blue, like really quickly, and it is quite intense. Yeah. I only foamed a little bit at the mouth. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's mad. And especially the news showed it. They must have, the they must have been a meeting there going, 
Are we all right to play this? Yeah, 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 we're fine. And then we cut to the man in the room that's losing his mind. Although, I have, as we have learned, Japan wasn't too worried yeah, about didn't. what they put on their screen. Yeah, no, exactly. <laughs> that's mad. I have one more for you. I think this is potentially my favourite. Kind of saved the best till last, I hope. <laughs> Ready? Yeah, go on. The summer of 2000 was a tough time for Delhi as the city and its population of 19 million suffered a series of rolling blackouts. Poor lighting, cramped housing and excruciatingly hot nights were commonplace for people living in lower socioeconomic neighbourhoods. When reports of a vicious attack by a monkey man no, began no. to emerge, mania spread like wildfire. Who was the monkey man? How did the media become a major driver in the rumours? Did the media inadvertently cause the death of two terrified Delhi residents? Delhi police started receiving complaints of a savage attacker harassing nearby communities on May 10th, 2000. Immediately after starting to profile the attacker, they were met with some fairly peculiar descriptions of the assailant. All of the accounts shared the fact that the incidents took place at night, which made it difficult to identify the attacker right away due to dim lighting and Delhi's ongoing rolling blackouts. As the assailant has not been seen on surveillance footage or in a photograph, police were forced to rely solely on the physical descriptions given by the victims. Initial rumours quickly spread, owing to one astonishing detail. The assailant was described as a monkey man, a hybrid of a man and a monkey. Of the 350 sightings, the majority agreed that the monster was ape-like, between three to six feet tall, with a dark hairy body and red beaming eyes. There were numerous claims that the assailant could be seen leaping away from the numerous crime sites. As more and more reports started to come into the local media stations, the number of people contacting the police with reports exploded. The descriptions started to become more strange, ranging from the attacker being a monkey-like creature with Freddy Krueger-like claws <laughs> to someone wearing a leather jacket donning a motorbike helmet. <laughs> Was it still the monkey with the leather jacket and the helmet? I assume so. Have you seen Sing? No. Oh, that's a monkey in a leather jacket. Oh, okay. a gorilla. He sings Elton John. Oh, right. <laughs> I'm sure Elton loves it. <laughs> from this point on, it was difficult for the authorities to tell which reports were from actual witnesses and which were made up after hearing about the original witness accounts. It was also difficult to separate the monkey man sightings from other assaults in the city. Hysteria had, however, gripped the scorching metropolis and understandably concerned citizens went to the authorities to protect them. Many of the reports were ludicrous and had been sensationalised by the media, leaving local police enforcement at a loss. In order to gain a more accurate physical description of the assailant, the police designated a reporting hotline. They offered 50,000 rupees, a sizeable reward equivalent to $1,000, for reliable information that could lead to the capture of the monkey man. This ploy ultimately proved ineffective, since it gave rise to numerous hoaxes and pranks calls. So many dead monkeys did the police <laughs> get receive? But more importantly, it contributed further to the sensationalised narrative. This story was picked up by the media like a far-fetched blockbuster movie storyline. The media coverage sparked other reports, each crazier than the previous, which in turn sparked additional media reports, and so began a ridiculous cycle. It was a self-serving media feeding frenzy. After two weeks passed with no arrests and little to show from the local police enforcement, the terrified citizens decided to take matters into their own hands. Vigilante organisations started to appear in places with a high concentration of low socio-economic status. 
Contrary to the wealthier Delhi residents who could rely on backup generators for illumination during blackouts, poorer Delhi residents were forced to sit in their dimly lit or dark homes. Many feared that the violent monkey man may use the blackout to his advantage and mount an attack in the shadows. The monkey man hysteria became so extreme that many people were indeed hurt, not by the infamous attacker, but by the terror it provoked. A report in the Washington Post claimed that a van driver was chased by a mob that believed him to be the monkey man, dragged out of his vehicle and severely beaten. He was hospitalised with multiple fractures. Two people even died through their own fear. One man was so terrified that the monkey man would catch him that he dared scale a roof, but sadly didn't possess the monkey-like agility of his supposed attacker and he fell to his death. Oh, Christ. Another terrified victim was a pregnant woman who, in her rush to escape, tragically fell to her death down a flight of stairs. Both cases were cleared, demonstrating the risk of frenzy as well as the journalist's lack of effort in debunking this harmful myth. To add fuel to an already out-of-control blaze was the religious element of this tale. Hunaman, I think, is a Hindu god and warrior. I'm really sorry if I've pronounced it wrong. Uh, Depicted as half god, half monkey. And it was thought that he commands an army of monkeys. A further cry of concern was aroused in communities by the fact that about 80% of Delhi's people identify as Hindu. So, these are the facts. Right. Here we go. Monkey men exist. (laughs) Facts one. As the story developed, more and more embellishments and speculations crept in, making it difficult to discern what was true. However, a study was published in the Indian Journal of Medical Science in August 2003. Finally, out of the shadows, the overblown facts could be dismissed. The study analysed the socio-demographic model of incidents and injuries allegedly brought on by the infamous Monkey Man. The two-week period of reports revealed that East Delhi, the poorest region in Delhi, accounted for 94% of the reports. Of that 94%, 89% of the victims were from low socioeconomic backgrounds. Some experts think that they now understand why many of the allegations were made after noticing that the majority of reports were submitted by persons from poor socioeconomic zones. Due to the haziness of the media accounts and the lack of concrete evidence, numerous injuries may theoretically be mistaken for an attack by the monkey man. Some speculate that people were rewriting the series of events that resulted in their injuries in an effort to obtain medical care that they might not otherwise have access to. After only two weeks, the monkey man frenzy that swept Delhi faded. Local law enforcement was spending a lot of time and money investigating witness claims that were getting crazier by the day. They declared that anyone who made fraudulent claims, distributed misleading information or reported attacks without sufficient proof may face jail time. This warning, as one might anticipate, was sufficient to prevent many people from reporting monkey man attacks. Without bizarre witness accounts, journalists would have nothing to report. Any phantom assailant conspiracy that the media might have wanted to highlight to increase newspaper sales also vanished along with it. Even if nothing else, the bizarre two-week obsession sheds lights on the motivations of the media and how they would exaggerate a story by relying on false information, religious convictions or even just exploiting social fear to boost sales of publications. In this tragic case, it caused the death of two innocent individuals while terrifying countless numbers of citizens. As the monkey man. What a crazy two weeks that would have been. Or everyone's just talking about the monkey man with a leather jacket and a helmet. It made me wonder that... Did you watch that thing on Netflix where... I don't know if it was in Japan. It might have been in Korea, actually. But this thing, like, came... And took you over 
and it was like a shadow thing, but it was a gorilla. It looked like a gorilla. I don't know. It was like a demon. Thing. Yes. Yeah, I do remember that, yeah. And then weird. the media were like all reporting it and then in the end they had people like sitting in chairs waiting for the monkey man to come and like take the last lady. Yeah. Yeah. I just thought, I wonder if it was based on it because they literally made him a monkey and that was a lot about people from poor backgrounds. He came into like the towns of like poverty and killed loads of people. That's horrible. Do you think it just sounded, it could have just been like an actual person that they thought was like hairy because it was dark. It was like breaking into someone's house or something. Well, if it was like three foot tall, I'm like, it could have just been well, a monkey. Between, yeah, but they said between <laughs> it said between three and six, which is quite a range from yeah. monkey to human. But do you know what I mean? If someone just saw in the dark something that was three foot, its shadow would look about six foot, but that could have just been a monkey. It could have just been a monkey. And then that was it. That would have just been enough to spread a rumour that there was a savage monkey man going around <laughs> killing everyone. And once again, our dear friends, the media... Yeah. Made things much worse. Yeah, everything's the media's fault. Yeah, we're, we're discovering that recently. <laughs> Who should we recommend? Um, Monkey Anyone that's fans of Pokemon. Yeah. If you like Bigfoot, you might like Monkey Man. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'd imagine you would. <laughs> I think it's derogatory to call Bigfoot Monkey Man. Though. I am surprised. I think it's no a slur like, in some when, circles. Maybe it's Bigfoot. I'm surprised no one anywhere like made that. Like, I'm surprised the media wasn't like, could this be our very own Bigfoot? There is like an East Asian Bigfoot around like the Indian area, but I couldn't tell you what it was called. Oh, okay. Then you go a bit, you go north and then it's the Yeti. Yeah. So. Well, I hope you enjoyed my mass hysteria cases. I was thinking when I was writing them that we kind of already covered a mass hysteria case. You think about the meat shower? No, I'm thinking oh. of the Gorbals vampire. Oh, yeah, 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 you're in right, Scotland. yeah. And that was the same little vigilante group of kids obviously went out to try and kill him. But that was like one kid was told a story and then obviously the kid tells more and then before you know it, a whole school thinks there's a vampire coming from. So it reminded me of the meat shower episode we did, but oh, I think that was just a load of people being stupid. Yeah. And or, the media again. I suppose more, more than the meat shower, you're probably looking more the um, the blobs. The oak, Is it Oakfield blobs? Is that what it was called? Yeah, Oakfield blobs. <laughs> That was more of a hysteria thing. We've done some weird stuff. (laughs) We've we've done some good stuff. This is great content. Quality. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, really, most paranormal slash cryptic, they're all kind of mass hysteria. Yeah. They all do start with one person saying, I think that's a creepy thing. Summarised every episode we're going to do now from from now on. Yeah, there you go. Enjoy. Well, that's it. (laughs) You can email us at highlystrangepod at gmail.com. Um, find us on Instagram at highlystrangepod. Check us out on Facebook if you can. Leave a review. Or even just like to the Spotify thing and give us a little star rating. Yeah, it's five stars everywhere. And we will see you next, next week. week. Bye. Bye. <laughs>